last week, uh, Zach continued as he's been working through the book of Ephesians, uh, the next part of Ephesians 1. Uh, but tonight, we conclude the, the series I've been looking at uh, for the last little bit as we delve one more time into the waters of the Old Testament minor prophet Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, we learnt about sin and sovereignty. In Jonah chapter 2, we learnt about desperation and deliverance. Uh, in Jonah chapter 3, we learnt about uh, repent and relent. And so the title for Jonah chapter 4, uh, again, keeping up with alliteration, is Anger and Affection. Anger and Affection. Uh, and each week, as we've been working a chapter a week through the book of Jonah, we've been considering four headings. We've been considering, what does this teach us about Jonah? What's, what, what's going on here with Jonah in this story? But then secondly, what's the bigger lesson about God in this story? Uh, and then we've considered, well, what about Jesus? How does the New Testament and the coming of Jesus help us to understand what went on all those years ago? And then finally, what does this mean for us? We don't want to start with us. Uh, just a Bible reading tip 101. The Bible's not primarily about you. And even the Old Testament is even less about you. It was written a long time ago in a specific context. And so we want to understand that context about Jonah, the big principles about God, how to read it through the lens of Jesus and the New Testament, and then consider what difference does that make for us. Sound like a plan? Yeah. Sounds like a plan, Dave. Uh, why don't I pray one more time? I'm going to pray a traditional prayer uh, and also pray for our time in God's word. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, we pray you that your grace may always go before and follow us and make us continually to be given to all good works through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, may your spirit illuminate this word and give us ears to hear. And all those with eager and hungry hearts said, Amen. 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 Uh, well, first of all, as we kind of work through our four points, number one is Jonah. What do we learn about Jonah? Jonah is the angry prophet. Jonah is the angry prophet. Uh, it's a remarkable outcome from Jonah as a missionary. If you remember two weeks ago when we looked at chapter three, the whole city turned from sin toward God in repentance. And yet look at chapter 4 verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. We've just heard of perhaps one of the most remarkable moments of people turning to God in history. And yet Jonah is displeased about this. He's angry about this. God has relented from the disaster that Nineveh actually deserved. God didn't overthrow the city. And yet, why is Jonah angry? We'll pick it up with me there in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's an interesting insight into this ongoing conversations that he has with God. God, that's why I ran from you. You know, I've already told you this, God. I tried to run in the opposite direction of this mission. I didn't want to go there in the first place. Why? 
Because he knows that God is gracious and merciful. You know, Jonah had already judged within his own heart that the Ninevites were not worthy of the mercy of God. You know, Jonah is the most reluctant prophet, the most reluctant missionary ever. Jonah's hope when he actually did obey God and go declare that eight-word message of judgment we saw in chapter 3, his hope was that God would come in judgment, that God would not relent from his anger and the just judgment that they deserved. He was desperately hoping, Lord, I pray these Ninevites are smited. He wants them destroyed. Hence, he is disappointed that they repented and God relented. Fascinating insight into Jonah. Maybe you might identify with Jonah even there. Verse 3 continues and says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That escalated quickly. Crazy response. Isn't that fascinating? He would rather be dead than see the dirty Ninevites shown mercy and grace from God. What's God going to say? Well, let's imagine. Let's follow it. Verse 4, And the Lord said, "Uh, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And then verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city, hoping that God would relent from his relenting uh, and that maybe they would repent from their repenting. But you see, the Lord questions Jonah about his anger and then Jonah, it's, it's a bit of a tantrum moment, isn't it? He leaves the city, sits outside, secretly hoping that God will destroy them. What is going on? How is this possible for Jonah to respond so vehemently with anger? Well, Jonah has embraced angry religion. Jonah has embraced angry religion. Now, there's a whole bunch of characters like Jonah in the Bible. Uh, The Pharisees are some obvious ones that we see in the New Testament and other religious leaders. The older brother in the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. They're they're kind of ones that might immediately jump to mind. But there's three possible ways that we might be prone as well to embrace angry religion. Uh, The first is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is trusting that I am better than others. Second is entitlement, which is I live as if I deserve God's mercy and good things from God. And the third is resentment when others get good things too. You know, maybe one of those three words, self-righteous, entitlement or resentment, maybe that even resonates with you. Maybe that's perhaps sometimes how you've responded in embracing a angry religion. Or, Or maybe... And not to point fingers at anyone, maybe as you hear those, you kind of triggered a little bit because you've copped it from the angry religious mob. You've copped it from those who kind of come out after after you. You don't deserve the mercy of God. And and you've felt maybe even some of the lies and the accusations of the evil one that have come through those who are supposedly religious and yet are angry in the way that they hold it. You know what, as I talk about self-righteousness, entitlement and resentment, 
To be totally honest, uh, I think that's actually the, the background I've come from. <laughs> I grew up in a religious family. I didn't do the dumb things my friends at school were doing. I, 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 I did good things. And I thought that God would accept me because of the good things that I did. I thought God would accept me because of my religiosity. And, and you know what? I even looked down on other people who, you know, weren't as good as me. You know, the big turning point for me in my own Christian story was as a 17-year-old hearing from Luke chapter 18, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I realized I was a bit more like the Pharisee, if you know that story. The tax collector is the, the sinner. The Pharisee is the religious guy. And the religious guy is like, God, I thank you that I'm awesome. And the, religious, and the tax collector is like, God, I, God, I suck. Have mercy on me. And, and Jesus says, this is the dude that goes home friends with God. And I remember kind of going, wait, hang on, I think I'm a bit more like the Pharisee in the way that I'm approaching God. Look, I'm glad I didn't get involved in the things my friends were getting involved in at school. I don't regret that. But if I'm trusting in that as the basis for my righteousness before God, I'm kidding myself. If I'm, if I'm thinking that other people don't deserve the mercy of God because they're not as good as I am, I'm kidding myself. We're only ever all recipients of God's mercy. You know, it's right for all of us, including Jonah, to cry out to God that he would come in justice. It's actually right that Jonah looks across the city of Nineveh and actually desires justice. We, we ought to look out over the whole world and desire justice to be done. Who likes seeing injustice take place? Who, sees, who, who likes seeing the vulnerable persecuted? But how far do we want God to come in justice? In the words of one of my favourite Christian rappers, uh, Lecrae, he says, if we fought for our rights, we'd be in hell tonight. Isn't that interesting when you kind of fight for your rights? Well, hang on, how far do you want to fight for your rights? Because what you deserve is hell because of your rejection of God and your rebellion against Him. You see, Jonah has been shown mercy and yet he can't extend mercy to others. You know, the whole book of Jonah is about God's merciful pursuit, not just of the Ninevites, but even of Jonah. Jonah, get this. Wake up. I'm showing you mercy and you need to be someone who is a person of mercy to the world around you as well. I love the quote from Martin Luther where he says, we are all mere beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Jonah, you're a beggar. You're here by grace and mercy alone. Extend that offer of grace and mercy to a world who desperately needs to be shown that compassionate love of God. Every single one of us, none of us are any better than anyone else in this room. Or, or, or we might be marginally better. <laughs> we might be marginally better than the people that we look down upon in our lives. And yet the reality is we all fall so far short of God's glory and God's standard and God's righteousness. And so all of us are in need of God's mercy. What Jonah needs and what we need, particularly if you're prone to angry religion like me, if you've grown up in the religious family perhaps and you've kind of embraced some of those things, is we actually need to spend more time reflecting upon, soaking in and understanding the character of God. You see, the second, and this is the big thing you've got to see in this chapter. What do we learn about God? Point two, he is the affectionate Lord. God is the affectionate Lord. You know, Jonah already knows a lot about the character of God. Look back in verse 2 again. He says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
He's like, I know what you're like, God, but I'm just a little bit uncomfortable with it. I'm just a little bit uncomfortable with how extravagant you are in the mercy that you show to wicked sinners. You know, God's grace is that he gives us good things we don't deserve. God's mercy is that he doesn't give us uh, uh, the judgment that we deserve. How good is it that he is a God who's slow to anger? How good is it that he is a God that's abounding in steadfast love? It's overflowing. And how good is it that he is a God who relents from disaster? This is the character of God and Jonah knows this. God has already shown him mercy. And yet his angry response to God's mercy to others shows he does, still doesn't really understand the heart of God. Have a look at verse 5 again. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He's out there, he's watching, he's waiting, hoping that actually the Ninevites will be pumped. And yet God then provides a real practical illustration to actually show us today, but show us to show Jonah the folly of his anger. Notice as I read this next little section, uh, the concept of God's sovereignty. We saw that back in uh, Jonah chapter 1. We kind of noted the phrase, God appointed. Notice it again in this paragraph here. Look at it with me. Uh, Verse 6, it says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. (laughs) Jonah is now angry about the plant dying. Again, he, he likes a protest. He protests again, I'd rather be dead because of what happened to this plant. He's a little bit unhinged in many ways as you meet him in this chapter. But look at verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He's kind of repeating that question. This is kind of the illustration to kind of show the folly of what we've already read about Jonah. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Verse 10, and the Lord said, You you pity the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. This man pities the plant more than he pities the people of Nineveh. Here's the big lesson about God for Jonah and the big lesson about God for us. God cares for people. God cares for people. He, he has affection toward people. He is moved by their plight. Even wicked people. Because they are still people made in his image. Made to know him and be known by him. Then we get the final sentence in the book, verse 11. And God says to Jonah, And should not I... This is the the God of heaven and earth speaking. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God has pity on this place. He has pity on the livestock in this place. Well, of course, he's going to have pity on the 120,000 people, clueless people, spiritually bankrupt people, spiritually blind people. They do not know their left hand from their right. And yet God has affection for them. He is literally affected by their plight. He has love, he has mercy, he has grace, he has pity. And we've already read that back in verse 2. Jonah knows this, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is the heart of God towards Nineveh. This is the heart of God that hasn't quite captivated and captured Jonah as yet. And yet, how do we see this incredible affection most supremely? Well, just like point three of every other chapter as we've worked our way through this book, we see it through God's Son, Jesus. Number three, Jesus. Who is He? He is the amazing Saviour. He is amazing. He is remarkable. He is loving. He is the embodiment of affection. He is moved. Have you read the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. As you read the Gospels, as you meet Jesus again and again, he is moved to compassion. Here's one example, uh, Matthew chapter 9. You can look it up or you can uh, note it down. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Check this, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. The idea behind that word compassion is it's kind of gut-wrenching. He feels it in his inner being. He feels it in his guts. He sees the crowds. He has compassion. He's moved. He's affected for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He looks out and sees these people who are harassed and helpless like sheep who are without a shepherd. And he feels this for them because he's the shepherd. He's the one who cares for these people. He's the one who looks out upon the crowds and actually sees the ways in which not just someone like Jonah, but the religious establishment of his day in the first century have failed to actually care for the sheep, have failed to show the mercy of God to the people of God. And so it continues, verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The affectionate, loving, merciful Savior, Jesus Christ, the amazing one. He is sending workers into the harvest. Pray, pray, pray. We continue to pray, pray, pray so that the harassed and the helpless will be helped. We continue to pray that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as Jesus was proclaiming it. And you see, at the cross, we see exactly what Jesus, the shepherd, has done for the helpless sheep. We see the gospel of Jesus on display at the cross. Remember the words, Luke 23, verse 23. It says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. 
the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments. At the very hands of the ones who are executing him upon that Roman cross, he is able to say those words in the midst of the excruciating pain of crucifixion. That's where the word excruciating even comes from. It comes from the word crux. It comes from the word cross. He's got that type of pain and yet he's still moved to compassion for the people who have just nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, Jesus knows what's taking place at the cross. You know, last uh, two weeks ago when we looked at chapter 3, we, we, we talked about how, how is it possible for the wrath of God to be turned aside, for God to relent. It's because of that event when Jesus pours out his life on the cross. Jesus, the one who lived a life without sin, goes to the cross and dies the death that a sinner deserves, though he is without sin. And as Jesus dies, the wrath of God that is meant to come upon us is turned aside from us and taken upon him. He pays it all. The price is complete. He cries out, it is finished, paid in full. He rises from the dead, proving that he has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered Satan. He is alive. And this is the means by which God is able to show love and mercy and kindness and pity and compassion upon an undeserving people because of all that Christ has done. The one who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus, his heart is aligned with his father's heart in a way that Jonah clearly didn't understand in the book of Jonah. I love this quote from Tim Keller in his commentary on the book of Jonah. He says this, Jesus is the prophet Jonah should have been. Yet, of course, he is infinitely more than that. Jesus did not merely weep for us. He died for us. Jonah went outside the city, hoping to witness its condemnation. How good is this? But Jesus Christ went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish its salvation. I think I've got that quote on the little uh, outlines there. Uh, screenshot it. What a cracking quote. and What a wonderful picture of a compassionate, loving, and kind saviour. You see, we've considered who Jonah is, we've considered who God is, we've considered who Jesus is. Fourth and finally, what does this mean for us? Well, we are to be a people called to show beautiful compassion, to, to understand what Jonah failed to understand, to understand what Jesus has accomplished at the cross and show that type of gut level mercy and compassion to others you know Jonah ends on a cliffhanger you know there's, there's it ends with a question mark and you're like what happened with the rest of the conversation you know look at it again and should not I pity Nineveh that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle question mark come on what happens next did you feel that what book finishes with a question mark that's frustrating it's a cliffhanger Come back for season two and you can binge watch that on uh, Disney Plus or whatever channel you want to watch it on. We're not told how Jonah responds. Does he understand the heart of God? Does he align his heart with God's heart? Quick spoiler alert, I think he does. Because we've got the book. We find out about the prayer in the belly of the fish. 
We, Jonah looks like an idiot. And that's the sign of someone that's gotten it. He's not kind of going, and Jonah was a warrior and did all the right things in all the right ways and had the same heart as the heart of the father. He's not the hero in this story, right? The mercy and the compassion of God is the hero in this story. We, 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 we don't get the answer, but I think there's enough clues that he probably got it well enough that it's been written down for us. But look, I think one of the literary tools of finishing with a question mark like that is how will we answer this question? How will this story continue in our lives? Let me give you some honest reflections as I get to the end of this story. As I get to the end of this story and as I think about the community we are in right now, as I think about the people in this room right now, I want you to know that the last couple of months have been some of the most encouraging moments in my Christian life in the context of this community. As a few people started praying and a few people kind of kept joining in and I love gathering week by week. And if I'm totally honest with you, I'm very happy to stay in a pretty lame hall. I'm very happy to stay without social media. I'm very happy to stay with like no one in the like no one don't tell too many people we don't want to wreck this does anyone kind of feel that i don't want too many more people to come here like maybe another 10 maybe another 20 maybe we double the size and then we're like nah we've reached out we've reached the capacity this is it i'm not just being facetious here it's actually very tempting to kind of go this is comfortable this is nice. I can look around the room. I know everyone's name in this room right now. Most of you know each other's names. And some of you are like, I don't know that person, don't know that person, that person. You could actually learn those three names you don't know tonight. Uh, well, for, the, for the couple of people who are here for the first time, it might take you a little bit longer to learn the, the other 40 names that you may not know. But you, you get my point. There's something comfortable about this community that is good, that is intimate, that is good for our souls, that is good for our encouragement in the Lord. And yet if, if this book finishes with the Lord looking out and pitying Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, God cares for those 120,000. I'm pretty confident if we've understood the heart of God, as we look out over this city, if you're familiar with census data, there are 300,000 more people in this city than there were six years ago. Did you know that? Church growth has not kept up with that, that population growth. Church planting has not kept up with that population growth. Can you see the crowds? Can you see the 300,000 people in this city who've only recently arrived in this city, wherever they have come from? the vast majority of whom do not know their right hand from their left. And that's not to mention the almost 2.5 million others in this great city of Brisbane, the majority of whom who do not know Jesus. Guess what? This little community ain't going to reach 300,000 people. But we can do something. We can be part of what God is doing in this city as dispensers hope dealers, grace dealers, compassion dealers, sharing that love of God. 
as we understand the heart of God for people, as we understand the heart of Jesus to save people, as we understand the prayer that Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he'd send out more workers into the harvest field. Let us be a people. We don't have to do it all, but we give ourselves to actually being a little bit uncomfortable, to even interacting with people who might be hard to interact with. And maybe we kind of go, I struggle to show you mercy because I know things about you. I know what you're like. And yet when we understand the gospel, when we understand the mercy that's been shown to us in Christ Jesus, we give ourselves to being a people of mercy in this city and indeed to the ends of the earth. We'll close in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. It says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You kind of get the reverse logic of the passage there, right? People are saved when they call upon the name of the Lord, but you'll only call upon the name of the Lord if you've believed, and you'll only believe if you've heard, and you'll only hear if someone's preached, and someone will only preach if someone's sent. This is actually the pattern of the last 2,000 years since the Apostle Paul wrote these words, who's quoting the Old Testament in this moment as well. How beautiful the book of Isaiah are the feet of those who preach the good news. We give ourselves to beautiful compassion, using our beautiful feet to be on mission in this city and indeed to the ends of the earth. You know, as we think about forming this new community, as we think about mission, as we've kind of hashed that out as a leadership team, uh, you know, we've landed with, uh, we, we want to know Christ, we want to love the church, we want to serve the city. Serving the city is, is not just a program. Hey, turn up to the program, this is when we serve the city. Uh, but we want to live sent we actually want to live as those who have been sent out. And I hope in time we'll actually work out how do we equip each other? How do we spur one another on? How do we train and not just go turn up to a program, but as we go out into this city, we live as sent, as we shine the light of Christ. We do that through mission as we meet some of the spiritual needs of our city. We do that through mercy as we meet some of the physical needs of our city. We do that through making, as we make a contribution to the culture of this city. Where do we do that? We do that in our schools, in our workplaces, in our universities, in our homes, in our networks, in our neighbourhoods, and to the ends of the earth. If we had more time, I'd read what I've actually pasted into that uh, presentation there for you. I won't read it right now, but it's just fleshing out what Zach actually kicked off with us uh, at the beginning, as he shared uh, something of our dream and our vision. I won't read all those words, but read those words. And I hope as you read those words, that even, it's only part of some of our vision documents, but I hope that stirs within you something of what we hope Christ our refuge will be as many, as hundreds perhaps find refuge, security, and hope in Christ through this new gospel work, as we are those who've been transformed by that gospel of Jesus Christ. And then through us, not by ourselves, not on your own, not expected to do everything, but for us to do something, to get out of our comfort zone, to show the mercy of God that has been shown to us in and through Christ Jesus. Friends, why don't you stand 
as we uh, pray and then we sing to close out our time together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would um, give us eyes and that you'd give us eyes to see the type of God that you are, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Father, you are so kind. And Father, we, we pray that right now you would help us to enjoy your kindness shown to us in your Son, Jesus that we would, we would stand as recipients of your grace, knowing that we all need mercy, that we're all beggars looking for bread and that Jesus is the one who brings it. Jesus is the one who has a heart, who has a gut that shows compassion. Father, thank you for the way that he looks out upon the crowds and thank you that he saw us, that he went to the cross, that he lived for us, that he died for us and that he was raised again and that it's through him and him alone that we know you and father we want to ask that you would indeed um, give us uh, eyes to see as he sees that as we look out upon the 300,000 new people who've arrived in Brisbane in the last six years give us a heart of compassion toward them father we love this community that you're building Um, we, we want to feel safe here We want to know uh, love here. We want to be known here. Uh, But Father, we also want to be a little bit uncomfortable as we seek to reach out to those who don't yet know you. As we seek to be a place of refuge for perhaps those who've been burnt uh, in churches or burnt in relationships. Father, that this would be a place where people find hope, where people find security, where people find refuge in Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. Give us love for this city and indeed for your world. And it's in Jesus' name that we all pray. Amen.